Second Kings chapter 23. The whole theme of Second Kings is covenants and character. God keeps His covenant. His character never wavers. Sometimes we have kings and individuals and people keep their covenant, and sometimes they have good character, but more often they don't. But thankfully, we're in a section where we found a good king with King Josiah here in chapter 22. And we learned last week that when a copy of the law was discovered during the temple repairs, the words are read to Josiah. And the young king is shocked to realize that the nation has repeatedly violated their covenant with God. That was the thing that kind of just it revolted him, the idea that like we have violated over and over and over again our covenant with God. And that he realizes that God has been trying to get their attention for years because in the book of Deuteronomy, the last part of the law, he said, and if you don't listen, I'll do this. And then if you still don't listen, I'll do this. And he's looking at their history and he's looking at where they're at now. And he's like, God's been trying to get our attention. And we're at the very end because we refuse to listen. The only tool God has left is to allow us to be conquered by our enemies and to be led off into exile. And so Josiah responds to the Lord with a tender heart. Lord, what do we do? And because he responded to God's word with a tender heart, the Lord promised to delay the judgment until after Josiah was gone. What's interesting is seeing that mercy that God shows him, Josiah dedicates the rest of his life to fulfilling their side of the covenant. He seeks to re- restore the nation to a place of obedience in the hopes that the next generation would continue to keep their side of the covenant with, which basically would mean, well, the judgment will never come because God will just keep being merciful. And this results in the largest spiritual reforms in Judah's history. So chapter 23 is an account of these reforms. So verse 1, it says, And the king sent... And they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Again, he's reading this same copy, which leads me to believe that there were no copies in circulation, which is a sad, sad scenario. But here in verse 1, it says that the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. These would be the family leaders, not tribal leaders, because there's really only Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin included in the nation of Judah. And so these would be the various family leaders that would be in the various cities and villages that were there. And he summons them all here to the temple. Now, Josiah's initial purge of idolatry occurred about six years prior to this. And while that was a good thing, it was not an all-out purge. And so to get the nation back to honoring their covenant with God, he's going to need the support of the whole nation. And that requires the support of its leaders. So he he gathers them in. And then it mentions that in verse 2, the king went up into the house of the Lord of the temple, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. I imagine that people were probably clogging the streets as far as he could see. So what does Josiah do with this massive crowd filled with well-known dignitaries in the nation and of all sorts of unknown faces? He reads the Bible to all of them. That's what he does. He read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. He read every word. He didn't get to the part in Numbers where it says, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and he said, we're going to skip this part. He read the whole thing, read the whole thing, because all of the words matter. One of the dangers that we can get into if you teach the Bible or if you lead a Bible study is that we can think that it's my words about his words that matter. But it's not my words about his words that matter, it's all his words that matter. Jeremiah, who's a contemporary during Josiah's reign, he's one of the main prophets probably included in that group that's here right now. God, when he called him, he said, God told him, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. That's what people need to hear. Not my words about God's words, because it's his words that matter. 
Now you say, well, then why do we have anyone preaching? Well, because God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the lost and build up His people. That's why I always think it's odd that we put people like this on, this on pedestals. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching, but we must never think our words are more important than His. There's a certain gentleman who I would say is not quite He's very vocal about how it's not the Bible that is, is our, our bedrock of Christianity. And, and he makes the point of how he had taught for years and years and years. He said, but then when I realized if I just come up with a phrase that people can leave with, they'll never forget that phrase. I don't care if you forget everything I said tonight, but if you remember what God said, you're going to be just fine. Now, in Deuteronomy, toward the end of Josiah's reading, they would have heard how Moses commanded the generation that was now going into the promised land. Remember, the first generation died in the wilderness. Then Deuteronomy is written as Moses is giving an exhortation to the generation that did not come out of Egypt, the kids of those who died in the wilderness, and they're about to go into the promised land. Well, they would have just read how Moses commanded them, when you go into the promised land, you need to renew your covenant with the Lord. When you get there, you're going to go to Mount Ebal and uh, Mount Gerizim in the valley there, and then you're going to call down the blessings and the curses, and you're going to recommit yourselves to your covenant with God. And so Josiah, it's like he closes the book of the law when he's done, and he says, it's time for our generation to do the same thing. It's time for our generation to renew our covenant with the Lord. And so verse 3, it says, The king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. The pillar that's being referred to there in front of the temple on the porch, there were two bronze pillars that were there. And 2 Kings eleven fourteen mentions that there was a raised platform built there for the king to use anytime he was making proclamations. And so he's on that platform by the pillar. And before he calls them to do anything, he makes a covenant before the Lord. The word to make a covenant means to cut an agreement with God. God, you said this is what you would do. These are the terms that we would be your people if we kept this part of the covenant. And he recommits himself and the people to that. The terms of the agreement were already set down in God's law. So like Joshua centuries before, after they finished conquering the promised land, he says, now what are you going to do, guys? And he says, we're going to serve the Lord. So choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, Josiah is declaring before everyone right now, we're going to serve the Lord. Are you in? And what does it mean that they're going to serve the Lord? Hasn't that been what they've been doing? Well, this covenant that he makes here, it highlights three changes they will make to how they approach life, part of the terms that God had already set out. Number one, he says, we're going to walk after the Lord. The change they're going to make is they're going to let God take the lead, and they're going to follow Him wherever He goes. That's the first change that they're going to make. The second change they're going to make is to keep His commandments, His testimonies, and His statutes with all their heart, with all their soul. The idea here is if you look at the law, there are seven words that are used to describe God's law, and they each give an aspect of of what those laws are. And he highlights three words here. The word His commandments refer to what God wants, His will. The word His testimonies refers to His revelation, what He has revealed about himself, about us. And then thirdly, his statutes, which refers to God's standards. So he says, number one change we're going to make, we're going to let the Lord take the lead and we're going to follow him wherever he goes. Number two, we're going to align our hearts with what God's will is, God's revelation, and God's standards. That's something we haven't been doing. We're going to make that change. And we're going to do it with all our heart and with all our soul. And then thirdly, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. In other words, to carry out what we've committed to doing. If I want to see change in how I approach life, these are the types of things I need to, I need to implement. And so I ask you tonight, you know, have you, have you ever decided or do you maybe need to redecide to let God take the lead? You know, to let God take the lead, that He's the one who's going to decide where we're going, where you're going, and, and you're going to follow him wherever that he goes. Have you made that decision?
Have you aligned your heart with God's ways, with His will, and what He's revealed in His standards? You know, when you make that decision, I like what my very first pastor used to say. He would say, you say, when you make a decision like that, it eliminates the need to make further decisions down the road. Should I finagle my time card so I don't, I don't lose any of my pay? Well, well, no, I already committed to go where the Lord wants me to go and, and to go by His standards. So I know that His standards say to be honest in my, my business dealings with other people. So no, I'm not going to do that, right? It eliminates the need to make a decision in the heat of the moment because you've already made a quality decision to, to plant your feet here and that you don't have to make those other decisions. Have you done that? Have you aligned your heart with God's ways, His will, His revelation, His standards, with all your heart and with all your soul? And then lastly, have you taken the steps to carry out what you've committed to do? A lot of times we make commitments to the Lord, but we don't, we don't take any steps to carry it out. You know, we'll have an emotional moment. And there's nothing wrong with emotion. They have an emotional moment. There's a message or a song or a testimony or something. And you go, oh, Lord, that you're speaking to me. This needs to change. And, and, and I'm making that commitment today. It's going to change. But then if you just go home and you don't make plans to how you're going to carry out that change, you're not likely to experience change. Have you done that? Have you taken the steps necessary to carry out what you've committed to do? Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be mended. You go home, all right, Lord, I'm going to mend this relationship. But then you don't make plans about how you're going to reach out. And then four or five days go by and the emotions start to kind of dwindle. And before you know it, you've not really made any changes, right? I, when God's kind of dealing with me, I like to make decisions that evening to get alone with the Lord. Or maybe like when I'm laying down in bed and go, okay, God, how are we going to do this? I made a decision tonight, but I don't want to wake up tomorrow and just be the same person I was before I made the decision. So what's the plan? What needs to be done? And I'll tell you, the Lord is not hiding in those moments. He just is not. Because it's always those uncomfortable words that will pop in your head. Say this to them. Lord, I don't want to say that. That's why I, that's why I had to repent tonight. Right? He's got a plan. He's got a way. He's got a pathway for you to go. But you have to take the steps and say, okay, this is what the next step is. I, I made this commitment tonight. I read my Bible this morning. I made this commitment. Now I'm heading to work. How am I going to fulfill this commitment? You know, you got that annoying coworker and, you know, Lord, Lord, dealing with you in the morning, you do your devotion, Lord's dealing with you. And, you know, you need to have a good attitude toward that coworker. All right, Lord, I'm going to have a good attitude to that coworker. And then you close your Bible and go. I guarantee you that coworker is highly likely to do something incredibly annoying that day. And if you don't prep in your heart, go, when John Doe acts like a fool today, I'm just going to smile and be like, Joe, it's always interesting working with you. <laughs> Rather than maybe what you'd normally be feeling, right? Just, you got to come up with a plan in the sense of, Lord, well, how am I going to carry this out? How am I going to be obedient? Have you taken those steps? Now, of course, our covenant with God is, is different than this. It's, our covenant with God is different because it's based on Christ's faithfulness and not ours. Amen? Our obedience is not an issue of obligation. It's an issue of love. But love makes these same type of changes in order that we might please the one who saved us, right? It's not that, the, it's not that, the, that mindset is different. It's that we're not doing this to preserve the relationship with God. We're doing this because we have the relationship with God. We're doing this because He loves us, because of all He's done for us, and we love Him back. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is a bold move on Josiah's part, but the people respond to his godly leadership. It says, and the people stood to the covenant, literally means they, the phrase to stand to, it means to present yourself in front of a superior as an offering. What do you need me to do? The people hear the covenant that he, that he renews with the Lord, and they say, we're all in, what do you need us to do? That's what God wants us to do. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of all the mercy God's shown to you, present your body a living sacrifice. So, Lord, here I am. I'm an offering. You know, God doesn't usually call most of us to die for Him. He calls us to do something much harder, live for Him. I've always been 
disappointed when you read the end of Samson. People talk about how great it was. You know, Samson, you know, he prays again, he gets right with the Lord, and he's like, oh, I'm going to destroy all the Philistines in my death. Really? Like God couldn't get you out of there? That's just it? It's just, ah, I'm done. Let me die with the Philistines. That's the easy way out, man. It would have been harder for Samson to go back out to his people with no eyes. Shame. And yet that would have been incredibly powerful to watch God work in your life. And here's this big, strong guy who had done so much, terrified everybody, even his own people. And now he's blind and depending upon God. That would have been far harder to do than what he did, committing suicide. Have you ever prayed out Romans 12:1? Lord, I present to you my body as a living sacrifice to you. You know what the problem with living sacrifices are? They squirm. They try to get off the altar, right? That's why you kill them first. Have you made that decision to present your body a living sacrifice, and are you daily reaffirming it? Lord, I'm, I'm getting back up on the altar. I don't want to squirm off. I trust you. I know you love me. I know if you're cutting something out, if you're killing something that doesn't need to be in my life, it's for my good. Well, with everyone on board, Josiah says, let's get to work. No compromises this time. We're going to remove every trace of idolatry, and most of the rest of this chapter is just boom, 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 how serious he was. Look at verse 4 begins the reforms that he brought to his nation. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. He calls the high priest, then it says the priests of the second order. No, that's not another bad Star Wars organization. These are other high-ranking priests that are different than the other guys. It mentions the keepers of the door. These would have been Levites who are in charge of the perimeter, greeters, things like that, uh, musicians. He says, I want you guys, all, everybody's going to get to work. And the high priest all the way down to the lowest guys. And get all these idols out of here because we're going to burn them outside Jerusalem there in, in the fields of Kidron. And we're going to take the dust of it and we're going to bring it up to Bethel. In other words, we're going to burn it where everybody can see Kidron Valley, if you're in Jerusalem at anywhere near the northeastern part and you look out the city, you see the Kidron Valley down there. If you're walking in the Kidron Valley, you can see for miles, even today with all the modern housing. In other words, we're going to do this in open sight. The funny part is when Josiah took these cultic objects down at the beginning of his reign, he just went and put them in storage. Hey, what, what do we do with this, you know, seven-armed God, you know, Baal? What do we do with him? Put him, in, put him in room four. Why did he do that? Well, because destroying people's gods would make people really angry. Listen, you wouldn't be happy if the government confiscated our building or our Bibles, but you'd be really mad if they just burned it all down. Josiah wanted to do the right thing, but he also wanted to keep the peace. Not anymore. This time, the only one he's concerned with keeping peace with is the Lord. It's the only person I'm concerned with keeping peace with. And so he says, well, we're going to take these things, burn them, and then we're not even going to leave the ashes here. We're going to take the ashes, and we're going to take them all the way up to Bethel. That's in, the, in where the northern kingdom used to be. Why Bethel? Why all the way up there? He says, I want them out of the country, into the place that God had already brought destruction to. We're going to bring them to desecrate the seat of idolatry in the north. Why all the way up north? Well, Josiah plans to do more at Bethel. We'll get to that later in the chapter. Next, he fires all the idol-worshiping priests. Verse 5, it says, and he put down the idolatrous priests. Put down does not necessarily mean to execute. It just means to stop or to cease their activity, to put an end to the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the planets, and to all the host of heaven. That's odd because the Bible does say that they're to be executed if they're doing those things. This is an interesting word, though. Idolatrous priests, it means 
It's a word only used twice in the Old Testament. It means scorched worshipers or blacked-garbed sacrificers, offerers. Uh, Hosea and Zephaniah both use this word to describe the priests of the high places who weren't from the tribe of Levi. So these priests, they would they were kind of like counterculture priests. They weren't from the tribe of Levi, and they would wear these black garments instead of the special garments that the priests, the white ones, they were supposed to wear. So these guys were basically the exact opposite. They not only bucked God's commands and claimed to be his mediators, but they did it in a way that was completely opposite of how God said. These guys would often be found leading the, the non-sanctioned worship sites that existed in the nation. I do find it interesting that the Worship God your way. Worship sites, they were led by people who rejected God's standards for spiritual leaders. I just find it interesting. Some things don't change. Now, the word put down, Josiah could have executed these guys. I don't know. But the language doesn't seem harsh enough, and he does actually use, the writer uses a word to say killed later on for a different group to execute. So I don't think he killed them. Most likely, he just fires the false priests and outlaws their practice. And it mentions here them also, the, these priests to idolaters, for whatever reason, Josiah seems to give the group that deserved death a second chance, a chance to recommit their lives to the Lord. Well, next, verse 6, it says, and he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem under the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron. And he stamped it small to powder and cast the powder from it upon the graves of the children of the people. Now, this was already mentioned in verse 4, but he gets detailed because he wants us to know what this is, this grove to the goddess Ashtaroth. He grinds it to powder. It was usually a big, huge pole, sometimes made of stone, sometimes made of wood, but it was kind of a symbol of, of worship to this goddess. Second Chronicles 34 verse 4 tells us the dust was spread on the graves of the idolaters. So apparently there was a graveyard of dedicated Ashtoreth worshipers near the valley there. And so Josiah, he says, we're going to burn it and then grind it to powder. And then we're going to take the ashes of what we ground to powder. And we're going to scatter it all over those graves. Well, he does this for a twofold purpose. Because number one, contact with the dead made you unclean. So it's almost like he's saying by defiling the ashes, he's saying we're never going to return to this kind of worship because now it's unclean. But in addition, it makes the graves even more unclean because it's idolatrous material that's being scattered upon it. So it's just a very complete statement of out in the open for all to see, we're never returning to this. Verse 7, there was something associated with Ashtoreth that he also dealt with. Verse 7, he broke down, tore down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the grove. So it's the grove, Ashtoreth. Now, sodomites here refers to these male shrine prostitutes. And it was not by the house. Literally, in Hebrew, it means it was in the house. So these guys had a worship facility, a brothel in the temple where you would come, and, and I'll explain it in a second, but, and, and sexual activity would take place. Now, why is this going on? Well, asterisks priests were interesting. They were men who dressed in women's attire. They wore women's makeup. They also castrated themselves to further their female identity. Now, because Astrith did not accept any blood sacrifices, that created a problem for a priest because how are they going to eat? So you could bring an offering to the priests of animals, and it would be in exchange for sexual favors. So these buildings that were houses that were in the temple that were given to them were brothels where these immoral activities occurred. And in addition to the prostitution, they had a gift shop. There were female worshipers there who sold little, it says here, hangings, which means curtain-covered brothel houses. So you could get your own male whorehouse, for lack of a better term, with, you know, these little cute curtains on top of it, because that's how the, it's in the temple. That's how the, the temple building, the way God originally told them to make it was with curtains on top. And so you get a souvenir, and all this took place in the temple grounds. Josiah tears it all down. 
Verses 8 and 9, he destroys the high places. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. And he does it from Geba, which is the northern part of Judah, not the northern part of Israel. That's Dan. Geba would be one of the northernmost cities in Judah. And does it all the way to Beersheba, the southernmost city of Judah. And he, it also mentions he tore down the high place of the gates that were in the entering of the gate of Josiah the governor of the city which were on, a governor of the city, which were of a, on a man's left hand right at the gate of the city. So basically fires all these priests who are in all these non-sanctioned worship sites throughout the land. He fires them because they're not supposed to be there. If you're a priest, it meant you had two jobs. If you're descended from Aaron in Israelite times, you had two jobs. Number one, you were to be on one of 24 teams that served in the temple for just two weeks out of the year. So two weeks out of the year, you would dedicate your life and you would serve the people. You'd do the offerings, you greet them, you know, the offerings of the animals, the butchering, all that stuff that, that took place. You pray with people, all the stuff that took place at the temple worship, you did that for two weeks out of the year. When you weren't there, you were required to not just live wherever you want, but live in one of the Levitical cities. Now, the Levitical cities were spread out strategically all throughout the nation. And the idea was, is wherever you lived as an Israelite, there was always a Levitical city near you. So that you always had these traveling Levites who would go around teaching the people. So your job was you're going to surrender two weeks of your life to serve in the temple, and then throughout the rest of the year, you're going to be kind of an itinerant teacher. Go around your local area, so you're going to live in the city God gave you, that you were assigned to, and teach the Israelites that are in that region. Those were your two jobs. Now, of course, that didn't appeal to many of the priests. And so during the time of the judges, cities would hire these priests to leave their city that God gave them and to come run their local unsanctioned worship site. And when it says high places, it's not an idolatrous place. These are worship sites to the Lord, to Jehovah. And so they'd hire one of these guys, and so they'd move out of the city God gave to them, and they'd go live there. And it was a really posh life in comparison to being an itinerant teacher, because everybody looked up to you. You're the priest of our city. This created two problems, lack of priests to serve in the temple and lack of scriptural knowledge amongst the people because you were being served rather than going out and serving. So Josiah, he kicks them out of all these cities. He defiles all their worship sites all the way from the northern frontier of his kingdom to the southern frontier of his kingdom. And then it mentions a particular happening worship site. I don't know where this was, but it just mentions it was in the city, in the gate of Josiah, the governor of the city. So I don't, again, I don't know which city this was, probably Geba or Beersheba. And the thing was, is this was the draw of this city. He put the worship site right by the front gate so that you didn't even have to go far into the city. You walked right through the entrance of the gate and boom, you're there at the worship site. In other words, Josiah even tore that one down. Now everyone who Josiah's, or who the writer here is, who's in exile in Babylon, who is being written to, they would know about that. Josiah's the one that wrecked that place? They would know how serious Josiah was that he took out the most popular worship site that was unsanctioned. Now, it tells us in verse 9, nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they did eat of the unleavened bread among their brethren. So they went back to their Levitical city where they were supposed to live, but they were kicked off the team. They were disqualified. He didn't put them back to work. He treated them like priests who were disqualified from the ministry. So they were still cared for by receiving a portion of the offerings, but they didn't get to go serve in the temple. Verse 10, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Kinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. He destroys this worship center there in the valley. Topheth, it's the name they gave to the place. It means the place of abomination, the spitting place. It's in the Valley of Hinnom, which translates to the Valley of the Wailings of Children. This was another valley. Jerusalem surrounded by three valleys. This was another valley, but on the south side. Kidron's on the northeast side. And in this valley is where Molech, the metal god, was worshipped. 
children were sacrificed to him to guarantee a new home safety, to guarantee your, your success in business or success in having more kids, whatever it might be. And they were burned to death on his metal hands or in his, a hole in his belly. Now, Josiah had already removed the idol and he already closed the worship site. But now it says here, verse 10, that he defiled it, which basically made it unclean so that no one could even go there. In other words, he makes it unclean so no Jew would ever go there to rebuild it. Sadly, just a few generations later, they did defile themselves to rebuild it. If you studied history at all, you will know that the desire to kill one's children for personal gain or personal success is consistent all throughout history. All throughout history. And the truth is that it will never stop, not until Jesus comes back to put an end to that for good. Man's heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, the Scripture says. And we will do whatever is necessary, even killing our own, if it means that our lives will be easier or we think they'll be better. I praise the Lord there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, right? So if you've, if you've had an abortion, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm just speaking of the wickedness of our hearts. We get frightened, we get worried, we get selfish. This is not a new thing. Well, verse 11, and he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun. And as we're in the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. Ezekiel 8.16 mentions that Ezekiel sees, God gives him a vision of a group that are worshiping in the temple, worshiping the sun. They've got their backs to the temple, and they're worshiping the sun. This is not a new thing. It was going on in, in Josiah's day. He had stopped it, but he hadn't taken these things away. It mentions that they also had a room. It says they had a room. The temple, the temple had all sorts of storage rooms around it, but because the priests weren't working there and there was a shortage, and there was a shortage of supplies, shortage of offerings, they weren't being used. Well, they turned these things into, unfortunately, pagan spots. And so there was a room for sun worshipers there. And the idea is that in these rooms where supplies were supposed to be stored, they had a chamber, and then in the chamber, it says it was in the court right there. So you could come in to the big open area of the temple, and in one of the rooms to the right or the left, they had set up kind of a booth where you could come and get souvenirs for sun worship. Now, whether these were real horses and real chariots or just souvenirs is unknown. Since the horses weren't burned with the chariots, I'm inclined to believe that they were real and that these horses were probably used with these chariots in parades through the city on days they worship the sun or whatever. And the horses, of course, would be spared because they didn't do anything wrong. They could be put to other uses, but the chariots were destroyed because God didn't want Israel having chariots anyway. He wanted them to trust in Him for military victory. Verse 12, and the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord did the king beat down and broke them down from thence and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. The kings of Judah had a special road made that went straight from their palace to the temple. And right up against where that road entered the temple, they built a, a house, basically the private quarters for the kings that they could be in when they came to worship. And on the roof of these homes, like most Israeli homes, they would have, they call an upper chamber, an upper room. And it would be walled for privacy, but it would have no roof. So it'd kind of be like their version of our porch. Well, on top of that, it says Ahaz had, he had built altars up there to these other gods. Manasseh had made altars to other gods that he put into the courts of the temple. These had been put into storage. Josiah takes them out, tears them down, beats them down, and then from the ashes, he sprinkles the ashes in the brook Kidron. We're done doing this. Verse 13, 
and the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. And he broke in pieces all the, the images, the idols in there, cut down all the groves in there, the, the poles, idols, and he filled the places with the bones of men. Now, the Mount of Corruption is located on the southern peak on the, of the Mount of Olives. And here we get the shocking news that these three worship sites that Solomon built for his foreign wives, they were still there. They'd been there for 300 years. The entire history of Judah. Talk about an awful legacy, Solomon. What'd you leave behind? Well, some wisdom and three massive pagan temples that plagued my people for 300 years. For 300 years, his compromise had corrupted God's people. Even Hezekiah, with all the reforms he brought, didn't tear these three worship sites down. They were sacred because, well, Solomon built them for his wives. I imagine they probably had tours in there and all sorts of things. You know, here's the one that Solomon built for his wife, Anna. And here's the one he built for his wife, so-and-so. But these were two of these foreign gods, the abominations, Ashtoreth, Molech, Chemosh. Well, Josiah, he does tear them down, and he makes sure no one will ever build them again by filling them with human remains. No one's going to go near those dead bodies. You touch a dead body, you're unclean as a Jewish person. He says, nobody's going in here again. You're not, there's going to be no rebuilding project here. Now, yeah. That brings an end to the reforms in Judah so far. It's a lot. But reading all of this, do you see why God had to judge Judah? I mean, do you see why? Imagine you're an exile in Babylon, you're reading this, and you would see all the junk that Josiah had to take care of, and you'd sit there and you'd probably think to yourself, what was wrong with us? Vegas had nothing on us. New York City, psst, child's play. I remember walking through Beshan, and they showed us where the male boy prostitutes were kept, the slaves. It's one of the largest sections of the city. There's so many private rooms, it's disgusting. When they would read this, they would realize the weight of what they'd done. And when they would see the great lengths that Josiah went to, to keep God's judgment from ever coming, and then they'd realize we decided to go back to it, that would be heavy. Now, I don't think it's healthy to dwell on our past sin, but I don't think it's healthy to diminish its awfulness either. I don't think that's healthy either. I think a wise person understands who they are in Christ, but also understands just why grace is so amazing. I think a wise person understands both. In Luke 7:47, Jesus uttered those words, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. I think understanding the awfulness of what we've done and what Jesus saved us from, what he's forgiven us from, causes us to love him and to stay away from it, to stay as far from it as possible. At this point, Josiah has been more thorough at removing idolatry than any king in Judah's history. But Josiah's goal is higher than that. Remember, he wants to prevent future generations from forsaking this renewed covenant. And so he's going to deal with stuff that's around his nation as well. Look at verse 15. Moreover, which means in addition to Judean reforms, Josiah now turns to his defeated countrymen in the north. He goes out of his country into the northern tribes, and he goes up to Bethel. Bethel, the seat of idolatry in the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they remember they deported a large chunk of Israelis and imported other conquered peoples to mingle with the Israelis who were left. Well, when they came in, they brought all their idols with them, and so God judged them too. And so they complained to the king. They said, King, 
you know, we don't, we don't know the gods of this land. Can you give us one of the nationals? Can you send back a priest and so we can learn how to worship the gods of this land and that we won't make them so mad? And so the king of Assyria did. He sent an Israeli priest back. And so even though Israel had been conquered and most of them deported, Bethel's still kicking. Bethel's still kicking. I've always questioned the use of Bethel in church names. I mean, it's got some good history to it in the sense that it had an old name. Luz was the old name, and then Jacob changed the name because he's like, the Lord's presence was here. Called it Bethel. That's when it was first called Bethel. But its history doesn't have a lot of positive things. Just, Just a thought. You do it what you want. So the king of Assyria sent an Israeli priest back, and Bethel's still going. The golden calf's still going. All of this to appease the Lord. Well, that's about 100 years before Josiah. It's still growing strong. Well, just as Josiah destroyed Solomon's stumbling block, he goes right after Jeroboam's stumbling block. He says, we're going to get rid of this thing once and for all. And since Assyria is weaker at this time, Josiah was able to exert his influence over one of their provinces. So he goes up, and he goes to the Bethel and the high place that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made. And it says both the altar and the high place, he broke down, burned the high place, stamped it small with powder, and he burned the groves. They also had a grove to Ashtoreth there. As was his habit, he tears the place down, grinds all the cultic objects to powder, and then he prepares to defile the site so no one will use it. But as the process of exhuming bodies and throwing bones in there, moving them from the graves into the worship site, he notices that the the tombs of the priests who had served at Bethel were right around the corner. And so in verse 16, it says, Josiah turned himself and he spied the tombs, the sepulchers that were there in the mountain. So he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and he burned them upon the altar and polluted it. And then it tells us, according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now, to know what he's talking about there, we've got to go back to 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Turn there briefly with me. 1 Kings chapter 13, and we'll just look at verses 1 and 2. Now, when Jeroboam became king, remember, he, he led a rebellion. There were 10 tribes broke away from King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, split the kingdom in half, and they anointed him to be king over a, a new kingdom. So you got the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, the southern kingdom with two tribes. And Jeroboam, when... The feast days started coming around. He said, if these people go back down to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to forget how much they hated the house of David and how hard he was to them. And time will soften their hearts. And they'll go, why did we break away? We should just get back together again. Like a bad relationship. And he says, we can't let this happen. We've got to create our own worship sites. And he concocts this theology that, you know, what they've been telling you in Jerusalem isn't correct. They've been telling you false teaching. Our real roots are what Aaron did with the people when he constructed a golden calf and told us that that was the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. And so he constructed a golden calf and made a big, huge worship site in Bethel, made another one in the north of his kingdom in Dan, and he forbid the people from going down to Jerusalem to worship, made it illegal. Well, at their opening ceremony... 1 Kings 13, 1. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah, so one, someone from down south, by the word of the Lord. So God commanded him to go up unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense, something that he's not a priest, he shouldn't be doing. And this man of God, it says, he cried against the altar and the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon you shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon you, and men's bones shall be burnt upon you. This unknown prophet from Judah travels up to Bethel 300 years before Josiah was born gives Josiah's name, predicts what he'll do, and now 300 years here it's happening as we read it right here. This is not the only time God will do this. Isaiah will predict a king named Cyrus who would make a decree that would allow the Judean exiles to return to the promised land. He predicts that before Babylon's even a powerhouse, before there are even exiles, and he does it centuries before Cyrus is born. 
These fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, they show us that we can trust the ones that haven't been fulfilled yet. God does not lie and God does not fail. Amen? Well, as they're exhuming the bones, Josiah notices a title on one of the tombs, verse 17. Then he said, what title, in other words, what is this this gravestone or landmark? It's got words on it. What what does this mean that I see? What, What is this about? And so the men of the city, so these are northern kingdom Israelites, they told him, well, it's the tomb of the man of God, which came from Judah. And he proclaimed these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. In other words, can you imagine what a heavy moment it was for these guys? They all knew the story. They probably saw it as folklore. You know, what's the guy with the funny, funny gravestone? Well, I said there's some king named Josiah would come around, you know, and he'd come up here and he'd break the altar and he'd burn the priest's bones on top of it. <laughs> Crazy Judeans. Now it's happening. Many generations ignored those warnings. Now the northern tribes were all but gone. That didn't have to happen. Again, this would be another reminder to those who are reading this in Babylon. God gave us plenty of warnings to repent. We didn't listen. Well, once Josiah hears the story, he tells the men, says, stop digging out his grave. Leave him alone, he says, verse 18, leave him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let, left his bones alone as well as the prophet that came out of Samaria. I don't want to go into the whole story, but remember there was another dude where God told the man of God, said, go up and then leave and don't talk to anybody. Well, when news reaches this prophet from Samaria, so he's a northern kingdom prophet, he hears about it. He's like, where'd he go? And he's, well, he's heading south. I gotta go find him. He finds him sitting under a tree. God told him, don't stop, don't eat, don't do anything. It's compromised. Tired. He's probably stressed out. I just, I almost died. King was telling me to be arrested, and as soon as he did it, his hand turned to leprosy. The only thing that saved me was the Lord. Prophet finds him, and he says, hey, come have dinner with me. He goes, no, God commanded me not to stop anywhere. And he goes, ah, yeah, but the Lord met me and told me. He said, you can come have dinner with me. God killed him. This guy said, let's bury him because he was a good man. And when I die, bury me next to him because I'm not a good man. So both those guys, their graves don't get disturbed. Josiah doesn't stop at Bethel, though. He hits every city in the hills of Samaria. Verse 19, all the houses, the worship sites, also the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. Josiah took away all of, uh, away, and he did to them according to all the acts that he'd done in Bethel. And he also, it says, he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars. He burned men's bones upon them, and then he went back to Jerusalem. I don't know why he killed these guys, but not the guys in his own kingdom. I don't have an answer for that. Maybe he did kill the ones in his kingdom. I don't know. But the seriousness he's doing this with is he doesn't want to leave anything left that could creep back into his kingdom. Now, getting rid of all the things that shouldn't be going on is just one half of obeying God. Now they need to start doing what God says to do. And so in verse 21, the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover unto the Lord your God as it is written in the book of this covenant. There are two commands regarding Passover celebration. Exodus 12 describes a family or a communal celebration, but then Deuteronomy 16 describes a national celebration. We don't know if individual families kept the celebration over the years, but we do know for sure that the priests neglected the national celebration. Now, when Hezekiah became king, he revived it, but his son and grandson went back to ignoring it. But Josiah revives it to a degree never seen in Judah. Verse 22, surely there was not held such a Passover from the days of all the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was held to the Lord in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 35, it gives us a much more detailed account of why it was so special. We'll, we'll study that when we get to that book. But suffice it to say, we should never neglect either our personal private worship to the Lord or our communal worship with God's people. Both are important to us. Verse 24, I'll try to be quick. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits, the wizards, the images, the idols, all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and Jerusalem did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. In other words, now he goes from, from like public worship site, communal worship sites, to private worship. 
He says the mediums, the people who, who would let spirits possess them to give information to people, mediums. The wizards, those who consult the dead for information. Images would be your, your heirloom household gods that you'd pass down to your kids. And then any, any crafted image of a deity, he, he gets rid of all of them. Any forbidden thing that violated Israel's covenant with God, he, he burned it, got rid of it. In other words, Josiah was sold out to obeying God. He says, it's not just about what's going on publicly. If it's going on personally in your house, get rid of it. If God said to do this, we're going to do it. No exceptions. And if God said, don't do that, then we're going to get rid of it. No exceptions. And so because of that, the writer gives a final evaluation of Josiah's life that we should all aspire to be our testimony. Verse 25. And I'm going to finish up with verse 27 tonight. It says in verse 25, and like unto him, Josiah... Was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might? According to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose any like him. That's interesting, because who's been the model of comparison for every king up to this point? David. And he says, not even David followed my word like Josiah did. Remember when Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Rabbi, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And then in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. David was a man after God's own heart. In other words, he got God. And David pleased the Lord because for all his failures, he never got involved with idolatry. That was what the measuring stick always was. Did you ever get involved with idolatry? Nope, then you walked with me like David did. Compromise a little bit, okay, you're a good king, but not like David. But this guy, Josiah has the unique distinction of being the king who loved God the most, who obeyed God the most. I want that to be my testimony, don't you? Well, we'll quit there, actually. We'll pick it up in verse 26 and See what the Lord has for us next Sunday night, should he tarry. Let's all stand. We read it in our scripture reading, Deuteronomy 10. Of course, it's in Deuteronomy 6 as well. And I already mentioned in Matthew 22, greatest commandment. What does the Lord want? He wants us to love him with everything in us, to love him supremely. Josiah was the king who loved God supremely. So, Lord, that's what we want too. We want to be those who love you supremely. No compromises. You say it. You say, do this, we want to do that because we just love you. You say, don't do this, and we want to stay away from it because we love you. Lord, let that be our, our byword in everything that we, we do and don't do. It's because we just, I love Jesus. I want to please my Savior. I love my Father. I want to please Him. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I love Him. Lord, tonight, maybe there might be some of us who Maybe we haven't presented our bodies as a living sacrifice ever, or maybe we, we need to re-kind of commit that. Or wherever we're at tonight, we just recommit, renew. We want to go where you lead, where what you want is what we want, and then we want to take the necessary steps to implement it. Remind us of that truth and help us to live that out, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.